great. This morning, I conclude uh, my summer series from uh, the book of Psalms. And you might remember we started this series uh, the very first uh, Sunday in, in June. And, and I kind of I began by, by a little uh, audience uh, engagement. And I listed several songs that have the word summer uh, in the title. And I think I listed several number one songs from uh, summer's uh, past. And, and Jared has been after me all summer, and I had to get a text from him this morning to be sure I get, get this right. He's been after me, and, and there have been, actually been a couple of others, been after me all summer to work in Fresh Prince and DJ Jazzy Jeff, their rap song, Summertime. So would you like to come up here and rap that for us? No, I'm only teasing. We would both be in a meeting tomorrow. If, if we did that. Uh, so anyway, I worked it in. Are you happy? All right, good. Okay. Before we jump into the final psalm this morning, and, and if you have an outline, you've got a lot of blanks uh, to fill in this morning. Let, let me suggest four things to remember about our summer in the psalms. First of all, don't just read the psalms. Sing them, pray them, and meditate upon them. It, it's been very encouraging to me throughout this series to have several, several of you come and say, you know, there have been a time or two when I'm reading through the Bible and I've made that New Year's resolution and I get to Psalms and I just kind of bog down. And uh, so maybe studying the Psalms together has encouraged us. Uh, to keep plowing right on through and not only read them, but pray them and sing them. We have actually sung uh, a couple of psalms this morning. Uh, I appreciate what, what Keith has done in his choice of, of hymns this morning. And but pay particular attention uh, when we sing together on Sunday morning, if, if it's right out of a psalm, it's usually listed uh, somewhere. And just make, make a note of that. You know, not only do we read Scripture, we can sing it. And what a wonderful way to remember Scripture and memorize Scripture and learn Scripture. But also use the psalms in your prayer life uh, to, to meditate upon them and to learn all you can uh, from them. Number two, imitate their frankness. One of the points that, that I've tried to emphasize throughout this series is this, that we often think about Scripture as God's Word to us. And, and that's certainly true of the Psalms as well. But maybe more than any other book in the Bible, the Psalms also give us language, words, to speak to God. They are real. And they address life. Not just the joyful, good times in life, but even those that are hard and difficult. When we're discouraged. Maybe when we're disoriented. And we don't know where to go. And, and maybe even some doubt. And we question, God, are you with me? Are you present in my life? 
So don't forget that, that the Psalms give us language through which we can uh, approach God. Number three, enjoy their creativity. I, I, I mean, there's a lot of repetition in the Psalms, but there is also a lot of new, uh, vivid language, words that the psalmists use to, um, to illustrate their thoughts, to illustrate their feelings. And I, I would, you know, if, if you have this kind of knack, I, I would encourage you, go to these psalms. Uh, write, write poetry, write new hymns. I'm always encouraged, again, when we sing Scripture. And, and the psalms are a very good place to go uh, to, to express your creativity and your devotion to God. And then finally, number four. Remember that the psalms teach us that the language of worship is neither polished, nor perfect, nor precise. It is simply honest. And I think there are so many times in our lives when um, we, we just need to be honest with God. We need to be honest with each other. And again, the Psalms provide us language and words and metaphors and uh, illustrations to help us in our walk with our Lord. So we come to the final lesson this morning. And uh, I actually went, went off script just a little bit and chose one, uh, Psalm 130. I think I was originally scheduled to, to maybe preach from Psalm 98, but we'll save that for an, another time. But let's go to Psalm 130. And you'll notice that it has an inscription which reads, A Song of Ascents. Psalm 130 is one of 15 consecutive psalms, beginning with Psalm 120, which bear this heading. Most scholars suggest that this word ascents, ascending, refers to pilgrimages to the temple in Jerusalem. However, it, it could just simply be a, a musical term referring to a crescendo in the song. Regardless, we have this uh, string of, of these several uh, psalms, and many classify Psalm 130 as a psalm of lament because of the first two verses that we'll read here in, in just a moment. We have uh, studied previously a couple of uh, psalms of lament. But, but in this case, in, in Psalm 130, the psalmist is lamenting his own sinfulness. Well, let's read the psalm. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman wait for the morning, more than the watchman wait for the morning. Israel 
Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with Him is full redemption. He Himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. I, I think from week to week, I've, I've mentioned that uh, for a number of the Psalms that we've studied, any number of outlines uh, were suggested from the secondary sources that I've been using uh, throughout this series. However, with Psalm 130, I, I think without exception, every single resource that I went to outlined it the very same way. It, it seems to easily outline itself into four sections of two verses each. And so I've, I've chosen to follow the same kind of structure. And so verses 1 and 2, we might say, is a cry from the psalmist for help to the Lord. He mentions being in the depths. Well, the depths are often referred to throughout uh, the Old Testament, seems to be used as an epithet for the depths of the ocean, which in turn is an image for the realm of death. Think Jonah here. Uh, think Jonah too. When, when Jonah is in the belly of the great fish, and, and Psalm two, or excuse me, John, Jonah 2 is, is basically his prayer. His cry for help. And he, and he, he says, I, I cry to you, Lord, from these depths. And so we're talking about a spiritual crisis here. In fact, the verbs that he chooses to use in the first two verses stresses a sense of, of urgency. The NIV reads, my cry for mercy is literally, listen, Lord, to the voice of my supplications, plural. Supplications is from the verb to show favor and mercy. So what he is requesting, right, he understands as the grace of God. And I, I believe the plural form, supplications, uh, would also suggest that this prayer is frequent. It's, it's intense as he uh, considers his spiritual circumstance. So the psalm begins with this Cry for help to the Lord, verses 1 and 2. Well, the next two verses. He expresses a confidence of forgiveness. If God does not forgive sin, no one, the psalmist claims, could survive judgment. And so this, this conditional uh, clause, if God does not forgive, kind of sets up this rhetorical question. Well, if God doesn't, can't forgive, then no one can. But then in verse 4 he says, but God does forgive. And but with you there is forgiveness. It's literally, but with you, the forgiveness. I mean, it's, it's one thing to maybe make a mistake or two and, and be forgiven from someone, but ultimately the forgiveness comes only from God. And then he cites the purpose uh, of forgiveness, that God uh, may be feared. Fear in this context, I don't believe, is, is sheer terror, but a response of awe and reverence because of God's grace and because of God's compassion and because of God's uh, forgiveness. 
And, and so the NIV gets a little free with its, its translation, but I think captures the point. It's, it's through this reverence then, being forgiven and understanding our forgiveness that we can uh, dedicate our lives to Him and serve Him. And then number three, verses five and six, there is this commitment to wait. Before Bible class this morning, uh, Judy mentioned uh, to me that she thought of me, and I don't know if it was yesterday or sometime this past week, she was at Walmart. And, and I told her I was going to be making a point this morning about waiting, and I, I had just decided I was not going to use Walmart as an example, and now what am I doing? Using Walmart as my example. You know, you're standing in line with 800 check out things and two people working them and I'm just not smart enough to use the self thing every time I try to use it the light goes on you know that red light and everybody's looking and people behind you are waiting and you know, what guy can't even work the machine right? but waiting <laughs> waiting is a part of life and, and even though often we don't like to wait it's a reality in life and, and quite honestly, it's, it's a theme that, that you find throughout Scripture, but I think especially in, in the Old Testament. And what's kind of neat to me about waiting, uh, particularly in the Psalms and prophetic literature of the Old Testament, that it's used almost synonymously with hope. And, and so we're not, you know, we're not waiting just, just to wait and become irritated or disgruntled, we're, we're waiting because we have a future. We, we are hoping for something. And, and so both of these words, wait and hope, suggest a restlessness. But, it, but it's not anxiety, but, but it's, it's an unsettled kind of expectation. Right? We know what the future is for us as God's people. And, and we, we understand that we can be certain about that. And, and so our, our waiting is not in vain. Our, our hope is not, boy, I really, I really think this might happen. I, I really hope that it happens. No, we know it's going to happen. It's just some point in the future. And so this idea of, of waiting and hoping and, and this, this commitment to God. And, and I think contextually, what is anticipated here is that word of forgiveness from the Lord. One, one scholar, as, as I was preparing this past week, suggested that David and his situation with Bathsheba might provide a, a good example of this. Uh, as, as David commits adultery and he loses this child that was born uh, to he and Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet confronts him. And he, he gives this little story or this little parable, and David is incensed by it, and uh, some of the most powerful words in, in all of Scripture to me when Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. And, and then David confesses the sin, and he's over Psalm 32 that we studied, Psalm 51 that we didn't study, seemed to come out of this circumstance or this situation in, in David's life as he receives this word of forgiveness 
uh, from God. In, in, in Psalm 130, we have this really, I, I think, kind of powerful metaphor of, of the watchman sitting through the last of the three night watches, peering, peering into the darkness for the first sign of dawn. Um, and and this, this peering to, to signify their watch is over and they can rest and, and they can go home. E- even more intense than that is this anticipation, this waiting, this hope in the Lord. It's, it's, it's as if morning has dawned. And so this beautiful word picture of, of what it means to wait and to hope and, and God then fulfilling that expectation. And then number four, the psalm I, I think kind of concludes in, in an un, unusual way. The psalmist has, has been very personal to this point. And, and I think almost in, individual uh, to this point. But then he extends this challenge to the community, and he addresses the entire nation of Israel. So it moves or concludes with with this move from the individual to the communal. The nation is exhorted to also wait and hope in the Lord. Uh, This morning in in my first sermon, Bible class, it was a Bible class, uh, you know, we talked about... uh, Worshiping together and, and making the assembly uh, a priority for each of us. And, and I think this, this is a text which, which might suggest that as, as we move again to, uh, from the individual to the community. We're a community together and, and, and assembling together and worshiping and exhorting one another to wait and to hope. Well, why? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because of two things, the psalmist says. Because of God's unfailing love. Jill, guess what word that is? Hesed. Yeah, our favorite Old Testament word, or at least it's become mine. And um, we, we spent, I don't know, two or three lessons ago talking about this word hesed, which is so difficult for us. Uh, to, to define in the English language, and I'll just remind us, loving kindness by several translations, mercy uh, by the Greek version of the Old Testament, love, unfailing love here uh, in the NIV, steadfast love, revised standard, new revised standard. Eugene Peterson translates it as generous love, constant love, loyal love, unfailing love, Faithful love. And, and finally, the word commitment is used. All, all emphasizing who God is, the God that we serve, His unfailing love, His commitment uh, to us. Thus, He is worthy to be, pra- uh, to be praised. But then finally, not only because of God's love, but also because of redemption. The word redemption occurs not only uh, in the New Testament, but as you see here in the Old Testament as well. And, and they're both, both the Hebrew and the Greek word are derived from a meaning, uh, a verb meaning to deliver. But redemption biblically does not mean just deliverance in general, but a particular kind of deliverance. It's the payment of a price. 
Um, it, it, that, that's what's involved behind the biblical concept of redemption. Originally, redemption referred to the release of prisoners of war. A price was paid and the prisoners were set free. By the time we get to the New Testament, even more so, uh, the, uh, a person would think uh, to the price paid for a slave to acquire their freedom. And so the biblical writers take, take this word, this, this concept, and apply it to the redemption we receive uh, from God through Jesus. So this, this powerful song of ascent, uh, Psalm 130, where we find those four things. So as we conclude this morning, let me, let me suggest four points uh, to ponder, if you will. Number one, I, I think this psalm is, is a good illustration that we see in, in other texts that life is a series of progressions. You know, we kind of talked about that this morning in, in the Bible class, you know, how, how discipleship is a process and, and how a disciple, a follower of Jesus, uh, you know, moves from worship as a worshiper into uh, the role of a student as we seek to learn uh, in our context in, in Sunday school and, and being involved in a Bible class and then uh, being a part of a smaller group and we become a friend uh, with each other and we develop that relationship and then move to being a servant. So this, this progression, this path, and we see that here uh, in this psalm. Verses 1 and 2, there is this progression from death to life, from guilt to forgiveness, verses 3 and 4, uh, from the darkness of night to, to the morning dawn, the light of a new day, verses 5 and 6, and then from bondage uh, to freedom. And I, th I think it's, it's important for us to realize that often we don't like to wait. And, and because of that, our hope fails at times when we get caught in one of these progressions. So I think it's vitally important for us uh, to understand that that's, that's the way life is. I saw a quote, uh, I don't even remember who it was from this past week on social media, media talking about how life is a gift. And just a part of life is, is suffering. And, and we often have to progress through these, these times of darkness back to light. And uh, guilt to forgiveness as, as life goes on. Number two, self-help is no remedy to the depths of distress. That's what this writer is suggesting in verses one and two. It's, it's, what, it's, it's the cry you see from Jonah in Jonah chapter 2. He knew he could not save himself. And, and we live in a culture and we live in a society in which you know, we're encouraged to be, uh, to be independent and, and to take care of self. And there certainly may be times that, that we need to do that and, and only can do that. But when it comes to uh, our spiritual life and it comes to our relationship with God, only God can take care of that. And that's why he, he says what he does uh, in verses 3 and 4. I mean, if, if God can't take care of me spiritually, no one can, but thankfully, God does. Number three, and again, kind of reflecting on this progression thing, night may seem endless, but for the child of God, morning is certain. As, as I reflected on this psalm and made this point, I, I couldn't help but think 
of Annie. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. You know, that over and over again. Just, just that, that thought of things are, are going to get better. And uh, whether it does in this life, we certainly know it will in the life to come. Morning will dawn bright and beautiful in the presence of our Lord. And then finally, number four. Again, kind of, kind of based upon uh, what he says in verses 1 through 4 especially. Every experience of forgiveness should assure us that a final, ultimate forgiveness awaits us. When we fully realize in the presence of our Lord and in the presence of our Creator, full redemption. I, I found it interesting, and again, in two or three of the secondary sources I was using to prepare for this lesson, that Martin Luther, you know, the great reformer uh, of the 16th century, referred to Psalm 130 as a Pauline psalm because he saw so much of Paul's theology in this psalm. This this idea at Romans 3 would be a text that uh, Luther would cite as uh, evidence that this psalm undoubtedly had a powerful influence upon the Apostle Paul. And I think another one of those texts would be Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praises of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us and the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of of God's grace that he lavished upon us. So as we conclude this series of lessons from the book of Psalms, as we conclude this lesson this morning, again, it's a Pauline psalm. And this text that we just read, redemption is found in Jesus, in Christ, the importance of being in, within the realm of Jesus. The New Testament teaches that it's in Christ that we receive every spiritual blessing. And so the important question this morning is, are you in Christ? Have you put on Christ through baptism? Uh, Are you seeking uh, to live your life uh, according uh, to His plan, according to His path, as we talked about this morning? Are you in Jesus this morning? If not, We can help you there. Or if you've been immersed into Jesus and just need some encouragement, we can pray for you and encourage you uh, as best we can. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, please come while we stand and sing.